Does this happen every recording session? No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, but but we are technologically challenged. Where do you uh, where do you record the gist? I have a home studio. It's not as good as this. Not nearly as good. Although I do have to say, it's a little bit more manageable and reliable. Little. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it's easier, right? Uh, in, to what it, good is uh, the fanciness of that studio? Yeah. <laughs> like beautiful Lamborghini, and I can't drive stick shift. Exactly. Uh, totally. How's okay. that sound? These are really good microphones too. I too have a short one fifty. Yeah, you just gonna you have a short this. one. Um, just uh, yeah, yeah. just uh, just lean into the mic, mic. Yeah, into definitely. the mic, mic. No, it's about uh. I used to work for this guy. Maybe you know him, Leonard Lopate. He uh, sure. yeah, yeah, New yeah. York public radio guy. And every single time when someone would say, how close should I be to the mic? Usually we say about a fist length, but he would say, oh, six to eight inches. And then he would say, yeah. and I was once interviewing Marilyn Chambers and I said six to eight inches. And she said, sounds good to me. That's I heard that anecdote 150 <laughs> times. <laughs> Didn't he eventually get, didn't he get canceled or something for his inappropriate comments? Like, okay. So he got canceled. He absolutely got canceled and drummed out of WNYC. And from what I understand from my friends who still remain there and are credible, he did become a very angry guy who would yell at the staff and make people cry. But then like that's an anecdote or a line in the whole story. Then there were these specific things he was supposed to he's supposed to have said and some of them are so ridiculous he was brought up for talking about the etymology of the word avocado and how it has supposedly something to do with testicles anyway it, it means it means testicle in like this um in uh in a central american language or yes Mexican exactly language. yes so if you <laughs> it's crazy he gets just that is a correct etymology he does language segments he gets drummed out in part for that it's wow. a little nuts. What do people have against testicles? Well, when they're not ripe. There's only like two days worth of ripeness for testicles, or as you may call them, avocado. <laughs> Tell me about it. I enjoy, I also like all these millennials with their testicle toast on Sunday, not being able to afford a down payment for a house. That's another big problem. Testicle <laughs> toast. Is that, where we, is that where we get the eat a bag of dicks? Is that where we get that phrase from? Eat a bag of dicks is really a reference to avocado toast. That's right. It all comes, it all comes back. And a way to honor the indigenous people of Central America. That's right. Instead of a land acknowledgement, right? Yeah. We just get that our avocado toast. Um, well, first of all, good morning, Sarah Hepla, um, from good. the morning, Nancy Rommelman. From the studio of Hijinks, um, as I was telling Mike before we started, apparently uh, when the Fifth Column guys were here with Megan Kelly last week, it got so bad that I think Michael threw a piece of equipment across the room. So I think we can blame our tech stuff on that. We're just going to we're just gonna blame it on one hand. So um, yeah, but here yeah, we are. We're, you're under arrest now. That's right. Here we are with Mike Pesca. Mike Pesca, thank you for, for coming on to Smoke Em if you got them. Um, I vow to be a more calm and have more equanimity than the fiery Michael Moynihan. That's right. Not not hard. Um, so, uh, I, you know, Mike, I have a question for you. I was, as, as all good interviewers do, I was mm -hmm. on Wikipedia this morning. And yes. I was reading about how you um, basically started your career when you were 10 years old, um, calling in about something about the... The Jets, is that yes, right? Yes, that is yes. right. Yes. So I want I want to know if you were talking at that point about how awesome Mark Gastonow's hair was. 
Uh, it was implied. It, it hung over much of the Jets, uh, the Jets oeuvre in the mid '80s. So yes. I used to call a local uh, station WGBB, which since got rebranded, and it was uh, it was the sports host and the linebacker Greg Buttle, and you know I would call in, and after two or three calls, I was ten. I had a pretty high voice, I guess, and they would love the calls from Mike from Oceanside. Here he is. He's calling again, and I would give, I think, pretty good insights. I have one of them on tape, and I was talking about the precision of the routes that Wesley Walker ran, and they thought it was a really good insight. Of course, it was just compared to the other angry Long Island Jets fans, so I guess I was better. Years later, I became a sports correspondent, and there's Greg Buttle there doing um, some sort of event to try to get a stadium on the west side. He's hired by the Bloomberg people. So I went to ask him just a regular question and maybe say, oh, yeah, by the way, I asked him a question. He gave me the answer on tape. And I said, by the way, Greg, I want you to know when I was 10 years old, I would call into your show. And that pretty much started my career. And he took that information and he said, oh, NPR, you're a liberal. Like, Okay, thank you, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, but that's actually true. I, I was kind of, I didn't, you know, I don't know. I just found out the other day, for instance, I was listening to Eli Lake's podcast and that he used to report from Gaza. I'm like, yeah. all these people we know have these just incredibly varied pasts. And you, you, I think you, you were kind of a liberal. It turns out all these blowhards <laughs> did something beforehand. Oh yeah. I'm still liberal. I'm absolutely liberal. Death penalty. I'm against it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, abortion. Mm-hmm. I'm Mike for Pesca, it. Mike Pesca is here. Uh, he is the uh, host of the Gist Daily News podcast, um, where he does interviews and riffs on pretty much any topic uh, with an extraordinary aplomb. Uh, you, you did. You you got your start in old fashioned radio, and I want you to tell us a little bit about how you how you got there. Before you start, I just want to say that there are people that I listen to on podcasts and it's almost like, you know, um, uh, listening to Twitter. I mean, I'm sorry, Tinder, where it's kind of like swipe right, swipe left, swipe <laughs> left, you know, like they're like in, a, in an instant, you know, if you're going to like them or not. You are one of these people that I don't know if it's your Long Island accent. I don't know if it's your turbocharged brain. I don't know if it's the fast way you talk. I don't know. The second I heard you, I was like, I'm so in on this guy. I do hate slow talkers, and I listen. Do you yeah, do you listen yeah, to podcast? Yeah. What speed do you listen to podcasts at? Uh, you, I do normal. I do one point two five. Uh huh. I'm at. I have to get another app besides the Apple Podcast app because that only goes up to two. So okay. I use I use uh, an app that goes up to about two point one, two point two, and then you could eliminate silences. So I'm getting a lot. And then at the end of the month, it tells me how much time I saved. I, I feel like I'm really beating the system just by listening to a lot of smoke them if you got them. By a lot, of, <laughs> I listen to all my friends on podcasts. I love your show, by the way. But it's weird. It's literally weird, Sarah, hearing you at normal rates of speed because I. Really? I've, talked, I've talked to Nancy in real life, and so I've oriented myself, but I have never heard you this slow. <laughs> yeah, I'm a slow, sultry talker. I'm going to make you insane. <laughs> but it's no, you're a normal Ray talker, but even the Cowboys podcast, I would just listen to you plow through it in double speed, and it worked out well. I mean, this uh, is a very common thing that people do. I listen to normal speed, but I will tell you when I listen to you, I start going faster because you have that turbocharged thing, and it gets me really excited. Um, I love I it. It, it kind of like it spikes my adrenaline. I want what is the name of what's the name of that that app because that's a really good hack because we all have so much stuff to listen to. Some people I listen to on regular speed like the fifth column guys cuz they're like my friends and I want to hear it but other people I just have to speed up and I think I probably could do 2.1 if uh, you, if it was available. You want 
you want to uh, just let them wash over you like the warm bath that they are. I use okay. I use uh, Pocket Casts. That's a good okay. one. Okay. Yeah. And there's another one that is pretty good called Overcast, but Pocket Cast goes really fast. Cool. Yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, how you got, I, I did read today that you had, you started a podcast in 2005. Yeah, that was, so I worked for the local radio station, WNYC, the local public broadcaster. I was uh, an intern and then a producer of a show called the Leonard Lopez show, which uh, he got, he got thrown away, thrown away. And then I was a producer on a show called On the Media, where when I started it, wow, man, when I started on it, it was a guy named Alex Jones. Not that Alex Jones, uh, the, <laughs> the Pulitzer. God, of all the people who just oh, what a terrible name to share. No, this guy and the and the real Alex Jones, you know, the one who doesn't spread horrible conspiracy theories, won a won a Pulitzer Prize for documenting the history of the New York Times. So he was the first host. It was this kind of bad call-in show that I don't know why it existed. And then there was an interregnum where I was literally the only producer, and I spanned the era from that host and that producer to. Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield, and then they threw Bob away. And then, well, that, that was years after I left. And then I uh, went to NPR and worked on a show called uh, Day to Day. I don't know how many people got thrown away from that show. Maybe I wound up being the only one. But I left NPR in 2014, and that was, that was good. I loved working for NPR. I really did. And back then, I would always say that there is this, uh, there is this caricature of NPR. And the anecdote I would say to tell you how real and not real the caricature was is that in the New York Bureau, there was a reporter named Margot Adler. She's since mm -hmm, passed away. Sure. I really loved Margot. She was just excellent with sound and a storyteller. She was also the chief, uh, I don't want to get it wrong, priestess of Wiccan. And I, they might not have a hierarchy. That's which is right. Yes. I remember this now. Yes. yes. So she was very Wiccan and she was very like into protest movements and yep. of, of the left in an incredible way. And I'm not going to say you wouldn't know it from her reporting, but uh, you would probably pick it up in a good way. I mean, I don't know how many people are tuning into NPR to hear a der uh, um, deriding protesters, but whenever she would do something, it was her, it was her editors, it was just the way to know, here is Margot's orientation, and so we've got to steer her in the direction she wants to be steered in, and she's going to give us great reports, and there was no problem. There were there was certainly liberal sentiment, and there was uh, a notion that this liberal Liberal sentiment to the extent it could be should be mitigated against in good conversations internally. And I thought it worked pretty well. You know, it was like there was never an acknowledgement, all right, we're from the left, but it was a bit of a left tilt, but also the news and facts as presented were mostly correct. I find, by the way, that where bias comes in is story selection more than anything, of rather course. than just misstatement mm -hmm. of facts. That mm -hmm. might that might have changed. Maybe now people are just misstating facts more than they ever have. So I thought NPR was great when I worked there. And then I left and I worked for a place called Slate. And uh, that lasted a few years and then I got thrown away. And now I am running my own podcast. Uh, Peachfish Productions is the name of the production company. And The Gist will have its 10th anniversary in 2014. But when I was at NPR, I heard this, I heard about this thing, podcasts, and I quickly discerned, you know, what's good about this? You could do real niche programming. And so I had a podcast called On Gambling with Mike Pasca. So I talked all about gambling news to the NPR podcast audience. That was interesting. That's so random. Yeah. And Fantastic. you know, and, and two things, one is that uh, Pesca means peach, doesn't it? 
Pesca means peach and also fish in Spanish. So peach in Italian, fish in Spanish, peach fish production. Sarah, you know how many people have discerned that and nailed that? None. You're the one. Good job. (laughs) That's right. I want you to remember that. Um, And then you said that this is the 10-year anniversary of The Gist, but I want to clarify that that's because The Gist was also the name of your Slate podcast. So like you were doing it on on Slate. It's the same show. I I, I pretty much bought it out, more complicated than that. But let's say bought it out. (laughs) And that happened, what, two years ago, a year and a half ago? Yeah, that's right. So I will uh, become, I'm hitting my second anniversary in January for Peachfish owning the show rather than Slate. And you, am I correct that you did the just five days a week? Yes. Now I do it six days a week, including. How, 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 how do you do this? What? Well, you know, I speak at 2.1 speed. So, <laughs> so your whole brain must move at 2.1 speed. I just have a high metabolism for information, but you God, know, you it all, but it also means that I don't have great attention to detail. My wife does. And so that's probably the biggest source of tension. But I kind of like, I kind of like, I would, I would, as a, even as a consumer, I accept and allow not mistakes, bad uh, misstatements of fact or something like that. But I give more leeway to imperfections in sound. And I'd rather just get a lot of information. So, I'm not one of these people who will, one of the reasons I listen in 2.1 speed, you know, my friends who are uh, the kind of put forward the kind of podcast and are audio people who slave over every edit and every sound cue has to hit at the right time. I'm not saying they're not doing a good job, but that's not what I listen to podcasts for. I don't get so much out of that. So I'd rather listen to two times as many podcasts and maybe miss the perfect sound dip and under and the sound of someone walking on gravel. I'll yep. sacrifice that to get the information. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's still, it's still a very tight and well-produced podcast. I have to say, it doesn't sound like it's not something that's slapped together. I hear you're saying it's not like maybe, uh, you know, radio lab level. Right. But, uh, right. It's not bespoke, but it's yeah, certainly it's high quality. You know, yeah. it's, it's an Indochino of podcasts, if you will. <laughs> oh, Bonobos. Do you have a producer who who does the production and the sound, the cutting and all that? I have two producers. It's really uh, my competitors. So when I was at Slate, there was another daily, well, it was a four day a week show and they had five people on staff. So I have two people on staff and they're overworked. And last night we did trivia night and we had to work. We worked till from eight to 10 and those poor guys, I got to give them uh, a day off. But yeah, I have two really great, hardworking producers. Send one of them over to us. That'd be great. Thanks. They have no time. They need need an unpaid internship. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, speaking of trivia, <laughs> Nancy, career trajectory uh, there. Yeah. They have never said on you. Yeah, uh, you must have read on on Mike's Wikipedia page that he was on Jeopardy in two thousand and four. I, I did read that. You and you know, uh, my that is daughter. So hot, by the way, that is so hot. <laughs> we have to find a clip of that. Um, um, I have my daughter's friend uh, last year, or maybe it was the year before, went through the whole. Uh, rigmarole to try to qualify to get yeah. on Jeopardy, and he's passed, and now he's just waiting to hear whether they're going to tap him to be on the show. I did that three times. I did it for Teen Jeopardy, and my personality definitely turned them off. <laughs> Looking back in retrospect, my insouciance <laughs> as a teen, they want more wholesomeness than that. And then I did College Jeopardy, and I don't know, probably the fact that I looked like John Popper at the time turned them off. And that, you know, Wait, what? Blues- Were you heavier? Yeah. Yes, yes. And I was shaggier and I don't know, I had a Chewbacca vibe maybe. And then as an adult, 
<laughs> as an adult, I just, so I kept passing the test and getting rejected because I'm so off-putting visually or, oh. or emotionally. And then I, I made it. And I'll give you guys the final Jeopardy question that I flailed on. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Yes. Category, Emmy Award winning, nope, Oscar Award winning singers. Name two of the five, and I believe it's more now, but at the time, name two of the five people who've ever won an acting Oscar and had a number one pop single. Ooh, they won an acting Oscar and they had a number one single. Barbara mm-hmm. Streisand? That was the first thing I wrote down. Continue. Um, now, what did she win for uh, acting? Funny girl? Uh, See, I wish you were Yentl? there. That's right. So what I did was I said, wait, she didn't win for Yentl nominated. She didn't win for Prince of Ties nominated. She didn't win for Nuts. I started disqualifying all the things she was nominated for and didn't win. And maybe I even got one of those wrong. So I crossed out Barbara Streisand. You're right, Nancy. She did win for Funny Girl. But crossing Ooh. out Barbara Streisand was the biggest mistake I made in my life because, and I literally mean this, because if I just left that at the end, I generated a second answer. You want to try to think about, think it second out? Second answer. Pop, so song and Oscar. Yeah, number one Billboard single and an Oscar. I mean, Lady Gaga would be on that now. She would now, right? And so would. But this was obviously before then. Frank Sinatra. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that was the second one I wrote. And he won for what? A guy, Um, man with the golden arm. Man with the golden arm. Um, Pop single. I mean, he's got to have had more than one. I don't. I don't know. Oh, but Oscar winning. I I don't know. No, he won. Man Man with the golden arm. She's right. Oh, yeah. Oh, both. Anyway, I already well, got it, Nancy. Stop trying to. So what you're me. saying is, I would have won. You would have won, right? Yes. Unless, okay. like me, you second guess yourself, cross out Streisand. The time is running down, and then you say, "I wish I could just write Streisand, but it has however many letters, nine, ten. I'm like, ah, and I write Smith. Why did I write Smith? <laughs> Best guess. Like, like, just throw a net. Why did I write Smith? Exactly. Alex asked me which Smith, and I said to myself. <laughs> Do I, it's like, if I say the wrong Smith, are they going to hold me to it? So I was like, Will Smith, which today would be a right answer. It's amazing. But it wasn't correct. I love that. Not counted. Smith is fantastic. It's a common name. Oh, I love it. I love it. If Um, only I could have done, if only I had not crossed out Streisand, I would have won that session. I was ahead going into Final Jeopardy. I would have won the next one because no one but me knew Final Jeopardy. The next one, there was a baseball category. No one knew. Anyway, I would have won three in a row. The other two answers, and the girl next to me got Sinatra and Smith. The other two answers at the time were Bing Crosby and Jamie Foxx. Oh, Jamie Foxx. Wait, had a number one song? What do you you mean? Yeah. What was Um, his number one song? He did oh, the. Oh, uh, was it like a Ray? Yeah, he did. He did one of the songs from Ray. He did it one was, of the songs from Ray. Yeah, it wasn't. I think it was it the one that was sampled on Gold Digger. I'll uh, we'll look that up. Is he still? Well, really I, if sick? they counted Gold Digger, that feels like a little bit of a cheat to me. I mean, I don't, I, I, maybe I, he he is the the voice on Gold Digger. Yes. Wow, I wonder what he thinks about that. Yeah, is he, he just. I don't know if he's still sick or in the hospital. That was like a rumor that. And, and nobody away. really, they, they weren't saying why. I mean, this is like yeah. for months and months. It's like, yeah, you would hmm. hope it was just one of those classic abor- uh, uh, exhaustion things. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. 
He oh has, yeah, are we talking about Jamie Foxx? Sorry, yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I know. It did, it's like it's kind guy. of like I know. It's so mysterious. What's randomly pass? Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's right. So it counts as it says as a musician. Fox earned two number one singles with his features on the single "Slow Jams" by Twista, alongside Kanye West and "Gold Digger" by Kanye West. I said Digger, but it's Digger. Wow. <laughs> so it counts. Jamie Foxx counts under the wire. Um, so why, why, what were we going to talk about here today? But I don't really, I mean, I do care what else we're going to talk about, but you know what I really want to talk about also, if you don't mind, because we have something in common here. I want to talk about Donald McNeil Jr. Oh, that guy. I, I love that guy. Yeah, me too. Even though I, you know, I was having a little conversation about this. So people, most people know Donald McNeil Jr. had been the science reporter for the New York Times for, he'd been there since he was literally a copy boy. And uh, in, uh, what was it, early 2021, um, Mm -hmm. he was sort of summarily drummed out for several years earlier, having been on a school trip with that, you know, kids paid for through the New York Times trips and on the trip. Um, Some young girl, you know, you can probably sum this up better, but some young girl said, you know, what do you think about this? There was a kid at school and she, you know, she said the N word, she was quoting from a song or something. And he said, well, was she saying it like to use it as a slur? Was she quoting from a song? And he used the word and then parents complained and they brought him in and they, the times kind of reprimanded him and then it was washed away. And then of course we had George Floyd was killed and then they re-brought it up. Some activist people within the New York times and said he was sort of, you know, making people feel unsafe. Meanwhile, he's the lead reporter, the lead science reporter during COVID kind of a big serious situation. And, um, he was trialed by basically the people in the New York times and, um, and, and drummed out. And I was very, very, very upset about this. I did a ton of podcasting and writing about it for Newsweek and for my own stuff and with Matt Welch. And Mike, Mike had some feelings about it too. You want to tell us about that? I had some feelings. Yeah. So uh, there was a discussion group uh, within Slate on the Slack channel. It's called Media News. And the point is for everyone at Slate at the time to discuss media news. And Slack works different ways at different companies. How it worked for me and how it worked for Slate back then is a number of ways. And there was kibitzing, but there was also the idea explicitly stated that conversations on Slack become articles. Conversations on Slack for me became segments on my show. Frequently, I could point to many articles that began as people on Slack saying, you know, Amazon shouldn't get any tax breaks to move into Queens. And then I was saying, well, you know, if you really, you're kind of misstating it, they're getting about a 10 percent discount. It's still worth it. We'd get into a debate, a discussion. Uh, There was no animosity. And then an editor would say, hey, Matt, Mike, why don't you write that article? That seems like a good discussion. That's what Slack was used for. I had a segment on my show called Mike Debates Slate. And they would frequently come from either an article that had nothing to do with Slack or a Slack discussion. I would say, hey, this is good. You want to take this on the show? And then we'd have those debates. So in the media channel, they're, they were discussing what was going on with Donald McNeil, and everyone who had posted up to that point was either in favor of his firing or thought what he did was horrible or at least didn't say to the very vocal people that this guy should be drummed out, that no, I think we should think about this a different way. So I, stupidly in retrospect, said, no, I think we should think about this a different way. And uh, that other way of thinking about it was not met very well. Um, I, of course, never used 
not only did I never use the actual word, I didn't even use the phrase the N word because I, I was told and heard that that could be triggering. And in fact, you remember a year or so later that professor at uh, Chicago Law, a Chicago law school used that uh, construction, the N word in a, in a uh, final exam, or maybe it was a midterm, and he got in a lot of trouble because it was so triggering. And how could you expect someone to concentrate if the phrase the N word was written down in front of them? So yeah, I mean, cut to this, you know, all played out over a, a holiday weekend. I think it was President's Day. And by the end, there were charges, there were investigation. I was, you know, being, uh, um, I don't know, thrown onto the funeral pyre uh, that would eventually consume me and Donald McNeil, who at least he went on to win a Pulitzer. Oh, did so he did. He won as part of like kind of a group at the Times, right? I don't think it was just him, was it? Right, I mean, right. It, right. The coverage right. of COVID. He was the lead reporter. You know, this. If the guy had done something wrong, this his accomplishments as a journalist wouldn't excuse it. But since he did nothing wrong, and since he was an unbelievably important voice, and if you look at the coverage that came in after him. I mean, you just have to shake your head at some of it. Yeah, You kind of can't believe it, except we all lived through 2020 and the early months of 2021, and you can believe it. This is what was going on in media. Yeah, Mike, a- you're, you're, you're getting thrown out of slate marks one of the, like, it's, it's on my timeline of things, like the little flag post in the, in the ground that I was like, oh my God, the journalism world really is losing its mind. Like, it, it's Barry, the, the Barry Weiss, James Cotton incident, and you're getting thrown out of slate. It was just yeah. like, this is absolutely out of control. It's My crazy. position was always that we as journalists aren't here to sanitize news. We're here to reflect the world. And that doesn't mean, you know, there's such a thing as editorial consideration and you make those consideration, but uh, you make those considerations, but especially when you're trying to convey a direct quote, let's say, and McNeil was in a different situation. But it was just standard practice and should be standard practice for most journalistic institutions to not um, censor quotes when the audience's understanding of the quote is central to the understanding of the story. So that changed a little bit. And if you want to have a discussion and make a rule and say uh, things are so sensitive, we will never be using this word. That's the sort of thing you can do. But in the absence of that discussion, to retroactively go back and adjudicate as immoral or unethical people operating under what I think is the better way of doing journalism, it's, it's crazy, I think. It's just well, about power. <laughs> exactly. And I, it's also about appetite. I think that that appetite for people's destruction, it's, it's just you can't quench it. It doesn't matter how many people you throw into the maw. It doesn't matter how many um, 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 Donald McNeil Juniors and Mike Pescas you throw in because, because it's just an, it's an addiction and they l- seem to love the taste of it and seem to think that it's going to get them somewhere good. Where did it get the New York Times and its science coverage? You had pretty crappy coverage after that. Not all across the board, but some of it was really, really shameful. And also the idea that that journalists just don't care anymore about due diligence because this mission that we're on is way more important, this mission to sanitize things and to, I don't know, report some kind of narrative that sort of meets some mission that some people decided is important. I find it shameful. I find it shameful. And, you know, we keep asking ourselves, are things changing? Are things changing? Have we turned a corner? Are people sick of it enough? I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think people are sick of it enough? Do you think they've woken up? Do you think that what we're looking at right now in terms of some 
factions looking at what's going on in Israel and, and, and thinking it's actually like sort of a good thing and some of the insane reporting we've seen. Do you think, do you think any of this is going to help this, uh, this movement kind of turn a corner? I think that things are getting a little better in some of the newspapers I read, although some have just been lost and you have to write off outlets, newspapers where you would say, oh, you know, we know where they're coming from, but we'll, we'll score that into our perception, but you can still get some information. Uh, yeah, there are some that are absolutely lost. But I do think the New York Times is trying to get better. I think that uh, Salzberger, he didn't call it objectivity. So undergirding all this is the jettisoning of objectivity, mm -hmm. using not just the word, but the idea of objectivity, a caricature of that idea, throwing it away, talking about truths and lived experiences and fairness, a fairness um, ideal in terms of coming into the news and making prejudgments that needed to be pulled back. And the New York times has pulled back explicitly on that. And you can see that in their product. I also read a lot of, I read a lot, I subscribe to, I don't know, five to 10 newspapers and I, the San Francisco Chronicle has actually gotten a lot better. Hello, Smoke and We've Got Em listeners. If you are hearing this, that means you have just listened to the free portion of our oh, I don't know, bi-weekly episodes with Sarah Heppler. Sarah Heppler, who's just so busy right now, she could not record this little uh, interim moment for you. Um, we're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms. Again, to get the full fig, that is smokeempodcast.substack.com. Thanks.